So please turn with me to Mark chapter 6. As we begin this chapter in the book of Mark and continue our study in the book of Mark. Just a heads up, if you see me toward the end of the sermon, consult my phone. It's because for some reason I threw away the last page of my sermon. And so, just try to keep myself on my toes. Uh, So I'm going to uh, consult my phone where thankfully I have it saved. And uh, yeah, Yeah, just trying to keep it real. All right, so before we go to uh, the text this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask for his help with us. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us because we do things like throw the last page of our sermon away. We uh, are so easily distracted. We are so easily overcome by the most trivial of things. And when it comes to your word, it is far from trivial. So, Lord, we pray that you use your word to pierce even to our very souls, that you would convict us of our sin, that we might grow closer to you, that you would teach us more about you, that you would show us what it is that we ought to be doing in service to you, in service to one another. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I read about as I read this text this week and it made me think and Jesus is doing ministry in his hometown it made me think of the time that I did ministry in my hometown as well before I graduated college before Emily and I were married I worked a summer as the youth intern at the church that I grew up in and I went home that summer it was the summer of 2001 I believe and I preached I was asked to preach a sermon that Sunday, because I'd already kind of thought I was going to be doing ministry at some point in my life, and they saw that and wanted me to come home and preach. And after the sermon, which was probably really bad, uh, these you know they all came up to me and they were like, "We really see your calling in this." And then the pastor came up and said, "Hey, you should be our youth intern." And I was like, "Sure, youth ministry is something I had been considering." So this was a way to get my feet wet, so to speak. By the end of the summer, they were completely drenched. I was a 22, 23-year-old, really had no business being in charge of the amount of things that I was in charge of. My skills were sincerely lacking in most things. It wasn't that I was immoral, it was just that I was inept. Sadly, youth ministry has become a kind of lion's den that we throw potential ministers into. So there I was. I got paid $50 a week, and if I missed a service to go see my uh, future wife at the time, I was docked one-third of that. (laughs) I didn't know any better, and the church, of course, thought, he grew up here, so we'll get a hometown discount. It's hard for a person to do ministry where they grew up. People will never stop seeing you as that toddler in the nursery, I was even told that, or that high school football player, or whatever. They're always going to see you as that thing, even all of these years later. Jesus experienced that same kind of thing as he traveled back to Nazareth after an extended time away. He came back to do ministry among his own people and quickly realized that this would be difficult. 
Yet we are called to do ministry daily, even among our own people. And we are called to do ministry even out in the world. It's no coincidence that Mark recorded this instance with Jesus doing ministry in his hometown right up against the time where he sent out his 12 to do ministry in the surrounding region. I think that's good. Ministry is hard, whether it's among your own people or among strangers, either way. As we get into this, we'll look at the heart reasons why ministry is difficult. Not only our own hearts, but the hearts of others. We'll also see that the remedy for that, which, to spoil the secret, the remedy is always the same. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so with that, we'll consider this text. We'll look at two main ideas. Jesus preaching at home, and then the disciples preaching to the world. And so... Look together with me at the text, Mark chapter 6, starting at verse 1. Let's stand together in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. And we're going to be reading through verse 13. Mark chapter 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty works there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about, and he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and to put out or to put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, but when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. So remember, just as a bit of context, remember in the chapters leading up to this point, Jesus had been preaching and teaching and doing works in the, in the areas surrounding the Sea of Galilee. He began in Capernaum, which was on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. Then he traveled across to the eastern Shore and did ministry there in the Gerasenes and remember healed the man with the demons and the Decapolis and then he went to the western side where he met the woman in the street that had the bleeding disorder and then he met Jairus and, and uh, rose his daughter from the dead and now he's going to travel southwest 20 or so miles to the tiny town of Nazareth which was in the territory known as Galilee. Remember, the reputation of Galilee wasn't all that great. But to Jesus, this was his home. He knew the people there. They knew him. Sometimes it's easy to lose sight of the fact that in Jesus' Jesus's public ministry didn't begin until he was like 30 years old or so. 
just a long time to live among people and get to know them. Growing up in an area gives you a particular love for that area, even if that area is not particularly lovable. I know this. I grew up in the boot hill of Missouri. There's not a whole lot special about the boot hill, but to me, it's a very special place. I love it because I love the people there. I love the memories that I have there. Jesus was not above those things. Memories. People. So when we come to this, let's remember that about our Lord. He, he, yes, he did the miracles that we read about, but he was also that little boy that grew up down the street. He was that too. This is what makes Jesus so special. Being a hometown kid can be definitely good at times. When people see you, they have good memories about you. Yet, whatever you say will likely be colored with the fact that you were once that little kid that grew up down the street. I think we see that here in the text today. That brings me to the first point, Jesus preaching at home. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? So far, so good, right? He went home, they followed, his disciples followed him home, and they, they heard him preach. He was a teacher in the synagogue. He's often called a rabbi, and that just means teacher. It could be that he had that position in a literal sense, that he had been ordained as a rabbi in the synagogue and was doing that in a, a very um, real, literal sense as he was there by profession. Or it could have been that it was just more of a title of respect. Either way, it wasn't abnormal at all for Jesus to be teaching in the synagogue. We see this a few times in the gospel narratives. And that word rabbi doesn't really mean anything more than just teacher. We see this in Luke chapter 4. He stands up to read. This is probably a different instance where he's standing up to read the scriptures. And notice the reaction of the people. Wow, where did he get these things? Was this some sort of wisdom that was given to him? You know, we've all heard that sermon, right? That made us think, wow, I never would have seen that. In the text until you pointed it out to me, to whoever was preaching. I had that moment quite a bit from an Old Testament teacher, which has caused me to love the Old Testament more and more. I have, I've had that moment with several guys over my ministry where I thought, wow, I can't, I can't even believe how he was able to pull those things out of the text. We know that this is the Lord's doing, of course, both in our own hearts and the words of the speaker. Humanly speaking, it isn't the preacher doing the mighty works, but it's Jesus doing them in our hearts. We know that Jesus does that. He uses the foolishness of preaching to see his gospel go forth. But here, this is much different, right? This is the Lord himself exegeting the scriptures. Wouldn't we have all loved to have been there and just heard him talk about them? Even in Luke 4, you can go and he reads the scriptures and he just says... This has been fulfilled in your hearing. Talking, of course, about himself. It would have knocked their socks off to hear him preach, and it does. They were learning, unlike they never could have learned before. And their next actions are going to just be to follow Jesus, right? And it would 
and everything's going to be happy. His hometown of Nazareth is all going to be saved, and it's going to be a future bastion for the gospel. Wouldn't that have been nice? But then you get these next comments. Look at verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. It's an interesting turn of events, right? It was pretty normal in those days, and not so much today so much, but in those days you called a son by his father's name. It was normal. Yet, they say, isn't this the son of Mary here? Why would they have done that? Well, remember, when Jesus was born, it wasn't exactly what we would call a normal kind of birth. Mary was pregnant before they got married. And so this is probably trying to dredge up those old rumors concerning Mary's pregnancy. They knew Jesus, so they thought it was absolutely impossible that he could ever be any different than how they've always thought of him. He was Mary's first son. He was just a carpenter, just a builder. What's he doing teaching the scriptures? That doesn't make any sense to us. He's just one of the kids of that family, you know, that big one that has all the people in it. They thought they had him figured out because they watched him grow up. Before I worked that summer in the church, I had already kind of began my transition to a more reformed way of thinking, and it really just began when I started reading the Bible. It wasn't that hard. I had never read the Bible much growing up. I got saved when I got to college, and I started reading the Bible, and I was like, whoa, this is different than anything I've been taught growing up. And I, so I just started learning and reading and, and getting all that I could. The church that I grew up in wasn't reformed at all. And once they figured out that I was, it became a bit of a scandal in the church. The pastor called me in and he asked, he said, when did you start believing that reform stuff? And of course, I'm 22 years old, don't really know how to answer this question. So I just said, well, I just started reading the Bible. My pastor was a Ph.D., he got offended. He actually got really red-faced and pointed to his Ph.D. and said, Don't tell me about the Bible. I know all about the Bible. Why couldn't I tell him about the Bible? Because I grew up there. Because I was just that Chipman boy. I was Josh and Aram's brother. I was Mike and Joy's son. What could I possibly teach him? Don't miss this. Because it might be easy to think that we're the one that people don't understand because we went away and got smart. No, when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're all too often the people who point at the gospel and say, isn't that when Jesus just died for our sins and rose from the dead? Don't we just celebrate that on Easter, right? Okay, I get that. Now, now what do you have to teach me? Can we get to the important stuff? If you think that you can't possibly be guilty of the sin of the people here in Nazareth, then you're probably already deep in it. Verse 3, how does it end? And they took offense at him. The word there is actually where we get our English word scandal from. 
And it means a lot more than what we think of when we hear the word scandal. It literally means to stumble over or to be trapped by. So when it says that they were offended by Jesus, it literally means that they stumbled over him. Seems like we read that from Psalm 118 this morning. The chief cornerstone, the rock of offense. When it comes to the gospel... There's only two responses. You're going to hear me say this a whole lot. It's the one that you see here and the one that seeks more and more to learn and and to be taught. On one hand, the gospel is offensive to the one who thinks that they already know it and that they already have a gospel of their own. And on the other hand, it's an inexhaustible source of life. So let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, because it's really easy to fall into this trap of, okay, that's just the gospel. Now do we, now when do we start learning that important stuff? It's really easy to fall into that, thinking that Christianity has all of these mysteries that we need to get and find beyond the gospel. The gospel is the inexhaustible mystery of our faith, that Christ would love us sinners. And that's just it. It's Jesus. When we, when do we get to the important stuff of Christianity? Jesus is the important stuff of Christianity. You'll spend an eternity with him, exhausting the depths of the love and the mercy of Jesus Christ. When we hear him preach, it should comfort us. When we don't hear him preach, it should bother us. And notice Jesus' reaction here to their offense. Verse 6, And he marveled because of their unbelief. It probably takes quite a bit to say that Jesus would be marveled at anything, right? But the unbelief of his own hometown is what did it. And so let us be careful when it comes to the gospel. We have to check our own belief when it becomes something that we already know or that old news. We are no different than these people here. And this is a lesson when it comes to the world as well. Because if his hometown and his own people reject him. If we from time to time when we don't believe the gospel and we sin, if we reject him. How much more then is the world who is still dead in their sin and trespasses going to reject him? And that brings me to the next point, the disciples preaching to the world. Look with me at verses 7 through 10. And this is paralleled in a few places in the Gospels. We're actually going to look at a parallel passage in Sunday school this morning in Matthew chapter 10. But look with me at verses 7 and following. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. So you have a group of disciples that are being sent out. We see again, we see the same thing in the other gospel narratives. The idea here is that 
the master, Jesus, has demonstrated the work of the ministry. They've been with him for so many months or years or however long it is up to this point. Now the disciples are to go out and to do what they have been shown, to do the work of ministry themselves, to travel through the towns and staying with the locals, showing them the works of Jesus Christ and teaching them the truth about the gospel. This is the work that they were to do. They couldn't always be with him. In fact, he says, I'm not always going to be with you. I am going away. Jesus' instructions may seem strange to us, right? They're not supposed to take anything with them but a staff, I guess kind of a, a walking stick, so to speak, because it almost seems like he wants them to be unprepared, right? No food, no money, just sandals, one outfit, and a stick, and you'll be fine. I think there's a few things for us here. Jesus is obviously teaching them to rely on him alone for sustenance. But I think it's also showing them that Jesus wanted them to rely on the people that they were ministering to. Because that type of relationship would help them actually be among the people rather than just be some hired gun coming in from the outside to show them one thing and then leave. I think short-term missions have a role in particular a very important role but I think about what it means to go and to actually live among a people in another place to work with them to see their day to day life for them to see your day to day life and struggles to get to know them on a personal level for them to get to know you this is the work of ministry in a nutshell whether it's on some foreign shore or on our own it's living out the things that you teach about. When you talk about the scriptures, that one, that's one thing. But when people see it lived out in your life, that is something completely different. What good is a teacher if he doesn't, if he doesn't live out the things that he teaches? Notice their message in verse 12. What Jesus, or what message does Jesus send them out with? So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. I like that it's nice and simple. They went out and told people that they should repent. This wasn't a feel-good sermon at all. But it was just calling sinners to repentance, right? Which is what Jesus came into the, the world preaching as well. This idea of repent and believe. And so they went out and they mung the people. And where do you think they went? Do you think they just went to strangers? This is in Galilee. It wasn't like Galilee had millions of people or anything. There weren't very many people there. Can it even compare to today, especially? And so they saw the people that they know. They saw their family. And so they had to go out among the people that they knew and preach this gospel. And do you think they were always received well? Do you think every time they went out they were going to be received well just because it was people that they knew or an area that they were familiar with? No, because what does Jesus say? And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Because he gave them these kinds of instructions that because he knew they were going to be rejected. You think others would have had the same reaction as the family of Jesus, even after seeing the works. They went out and they healed and they were driving out demons, just like Jesus had been doing. Is this going to make them believe any better? Not necessarily, right? Sorry.
You've heard it said and you've probably experienced it yourself. Ministry among family can be some of the hardest. They know where you're from. They watched you grow up. They changed your diapers. They pinched your cheek, whatever it is. So when you focus on yourself in that kind of ministry, it's going to be hard. So who should you focus on in that kind of ministry? Who should you call them to look upon? Not upon yourself, not upon your gifts, not upon your abilities, but you call them to look at Christ. Then they consider the most important thing they could ever consider is what are they going to do with Jesus Christ? And how do they, how do we respond then also when they reject that message? Jesus says that we should shake the dust off of our feet. What does this mean? I think a lot of people have really taken this one. And they're more interested in shaking dust off their feet than they are in living among the people. When a Jewish person would walk from a Gentile area into a Jewish area, some of these, the higher echelon Jews, would literally take their shoes off and shake the Gentile dust off in the Gentile land so that none of the Gentile dirt got on the Jewish dirt. Because Jewish dirt was more pure than the Gentile dirt, I guess. We have to be careful here, right? Because it's easy for us to think this kind of thing. But dirt is just dirt. We aren't any better than anyone else. But in Christ, we are better off. So then what do we do? If someone doesn't want to hear about how Christ can give them eternal life, that they can save them from their sins, if they don't want to hear that, if they don't want to repent and believe, then who are we to convince them? We have some sort of magic words to give them. Notice here, Jesus doesn't say preach only to those who look like they might be interested in the gospel. That would make our jobs really, really easy. We probably just, it's the same no one wanted to hear. No, he expects that they're going to face rejection. However, for the one who believed, the work of the ministry is going to be well worth it. So we set about doing the work of ministry. I think it's really easy for us to feel bogged down in this sense of rejection. One of the things that we that often keeps us from talking about the gospel or keeps us from doing ministry is when we feel like we're going to be rejected. So when you feel that kind of rejection from people, what should we do? Well, we just simply move on. Remember, the Lord doesn't need us to do the work of ministry. He has called us to do that. So the failure in that, a failure for someone to convert or whatever isn't, a failure that we have to feel as our own responsibility, so to speak. The message of the disciples here was really simple. Repent and believe. It hasn't changed since then, and we should still have that same message. And we leave the results up to our Lord. So in conclusion, the gospel message is the only hope of the world. Jesus became our sin that we might become his righteousness. This is the message that we have in Christ. And when that message is clear, we trust the Lord with the results of that message. And so let us then be faithful in our own relationship with Christ when it comes to how we view the gospel, that we would never see him as the same old Jesus, that he would never stop being new to us. And then let us share that Jesus with a lost world who needs him. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, we pray for your help with this, because this is something that we struggle with, particularly as we learn and grow. We want to leave these quote-unquote elementary things behind.
But it's these things that will continue to grow us, to continue to sustain us. And it's these things that we so easily forget. So, Lord, we pray that you would keep the simple message of the gospel for us constantly, that it would shape not only our own lives, but our ministry to others, whether it be our ministry among our own people, our families, our own hometown, or it would be the ministries to the world, that the gospel message would shape all that we do and say. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.